This uh, year we're breaking in earlier to our normal series, so we're not looking at John this morning, we're not looking at Thessalonians this evening, but we're preparing ourselves for Christmas Day uh, in this Advent season. Advent uh, means coming, the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are looking at verses in the Bible that are not normally uh, looked at Christmas time. They're not the classic uh, Christmas narrative, but they are uh, focusing on what happened 2,000 years ago in the birth of Jesus Christ. So today, God willing, it's the last verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I read this at the start of our service. Let's read it again. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Another great 316. John, of course, being the greatest. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirits, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, Paul here is quoting from an ancient hymn or a creed. It was probably a hymn. That is why in more modern translations of the Bible, it's put uh, in the form of a poem. And we've noted this already. How many of the Christmas uh, verses are in the form of songs? So in the midweek meeting, we're looking at some of the songs in the first chapters of Luke's Gospel, Mary's song, Magnificats. And last Wednesday, we were looking at the song of the angels, the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And here, uh, the most brilliant mind of the New Testament church, the Apostle Paul, is no longer just uh, analyzing. He is going off on one of his glorious tangents, and he is lost in wonder, love, and praise and he's, I can imagine him singing this uh, ancient hymn. Can you? And he's just amazed at what God has done at Christmas. Now, what makes this even more striking is that Paul was writing about electing elders and deacons and about the organizing of the church. He was writing to a young pastor called Timothy, and Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus, where Paul had been the pastor, imagining uh, filling the shoes of the great apostle. And so he gives him detailed instructions on what to look for in elders and deacons, just as we've been doing uh, in terms of eldership. And then, after all these detailed practical instructions, he just says... Remember, the church isn't just a religious organization. Verse 15, it's the house of God. It's the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And he is beginning now to go off on his tangents. Don't, don't you love these tangents? Would to God that we preachers would go off on more spirit-inspired tangents. You can never plan uh, what you're going to say in a sermon uh, the Spirit can sometimes come and just so anoint uh, 
that we are taken up uh, with Jesus Christ. Now, our tendency is to say, and I've said this myself, church organization isn't that important. It's the gospel that excites us. And I understand that. But notice Paul here in the middle of talking about the doctrine of the church worships. How did Mr. Hyam put it? Great is the gospel, but great is the church as well. Because God uses his church in the world to communicate the gospel. An artificial intelligence could never really communicate the gospel because it's living people who have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ who only can bear witness to this story of redemption. So let's not uh, demean the church of Jesus Christ. We're not thinking of the church as an organization. We're thinking of the body of Christ, the living church. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? To be saved and to be part of the church. So let's look at this hymn. Uh, we must be careful in analyzing it that we don't destroy it. Uh, if you look at a beautiful flower, uh, you admire it, don't you, for its beauty. You don't start uh, detaching the different petals and things. You just say, wow. <laughs> and that's what we want to do uh, with this. But we do need to analyze it a bit. So there are two stanzas here. God was manifested in the flesh. The modern translations will have he was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels. So that refers to Jesus' ministry on earth. It starts in humiliation, it ends in glorification. And then the second stanza, the second verse of the hymn, is preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. That talks about Christ now, working from heaven through his church. It starts below, but it ends up above. So there's this theme in each verse, humiliation, glory. Humiliation, glory. There are six lines, three in each stanza, and you notice the theme of each line is Christ. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirits, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received into glory. He, he, he. Christianity is Christ. Even talking about the government of the church, Paul can't get away from the head. Is Christ the heart of your evangelicalism or is it something else? The mystery of godliness. Paul is going to go on to talk about how to live godly lives. How to be Christ-like. 
Well, what's the secret? The word mystery, when you come across it in the New Testament, it's not like a whodunit. <laughs> it's not something that can't be understood. It's something that's been hidden, but now it's been revealed. It's as if the curtain has been pulled back. Um, the curtain of the organ there. Uh, I, I guess there's not much to see behind the curtain, but it's the curtain, the veil being removed. And the church in the Old Testament, uh, they uh, had little glimpses behind the curtain. But then, in the coming of Jesus Christ, the veil, it's not just removed, is it? It's rent, it's torn from top to bottom. So it's something that was hidden, but now has been made known. What is the secret? What is the secret of godliness? Is it uh, some uh, special knowledge? Is it something that you have to go to Bible college in order to understand? Is it uh, something for those who have been initiated, like the Gnostics of old? Oh, no. This is a secret that can be revealed to anybody. Many of these people in the early church were slaves. They were ordinary people like you and me. Uh, what is the secret then? Is it uh, something that you experience? Is it some profound religious, mystical experience? Well, that comes later, but that's not the secret. Is this secret uh, some... Rules for living. It's popular today, isn't it? Rules for living. Uh, is, is that what it is? No. Do you know what the secret is? He. Th this is where the newer translations are better. He was manifested in the flesh. What? Christianity. He. Christ. Very well then, let's look at uh, this hymn. This morning we'll look at the first stanza and God willing this evening we'll look at the second stanza. So it's going to be quite straightforward. Three lines in the first stanza. Jesus' ministry 2,000 years ago when he was here on earth, he was manifested in the flesh. What's that? God was manifested in the flesh. Who was manifested in the flesh? It's all the same person. This is the incarnation. What's that, you ask? Big word, but uh, wonderful uh, truth. We sang about it. Our God, the God who created the universe, the God who sustains the universe by the word of his power, the God who is giving you the very breath you're breathing at this moment, that God, who is infinite, was contracted to a span. What's a span? Is it the measure of, uh, from the hand to the elbow? Have I got that right? Well, our God was contracted to something finite, to a baby, wonder of wonders, incomprehensibly made man. I cannot understand it, but I worship, I worship. The incarnation, 
Not two persons, one person, with two natures. So Christ, the everlasting Lord, as the carol puts it, from eternity, he had been in existence from before the world began. It was through him that the world was made. The second person of the Godhead, 2,000 years ago, he became one of us. So another nature, human nature, So there's 100% divinity. There is 100% humanity in one person. Can you show me anything in the universe that is more amazing than that? Whatever else you're going to show me, it's going to be creature, creature. It might be a person. It might be, uh, I don't know, uh, some wonder of the creation, a mountain or something. It's creature. It's created. This is the creator becoming a creature. I, I, can't, I can't get my little head around that. It wasn't God the Son appearing as a man. Now, there were some people who taught that like a phantom, like putting on a mask. No, he actually became flesh. And blood. The emphasis here is the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. God became flesh and blood. And it doesn't just refer to the virgin birth that we're celebrating at this time of year. It refers to the 33 years of Jesus' life on this earth. So, at whatever stage of Jesus' life you're looking at, you're looking at God in the flesh. Have, have you ever seen the old film, I'm showing my age now, Ben-Hur? Have you seen that? It was done at such a time when there was more uh, reverence shown towards the things of God. Whenever the character of Jesus appears in that film, you don't see his face. I don't know what you make of that, but there's something awesome, isn't there, about the God-man. So just to go through some of these facts, this is the most relevant truth of all. This is why Paul was worshipping. It was a real baby that was born in that cattle trough. Let's not call it a manger because we don't use that word today. It was a cattle trough where the cattle fed. Have you ever been to a farm? Uh, My uh, grandparents on my mother's side uh, were farmers. And we used to go there on holidays. It was up on the northeast side of Anglesey. And they farmed cattle. And it was dirty. And the place where they uh, kept the uh, cattle, especially the younger calves during winter, it was smelly. Now, that was the kind of place where Jesus was born, where God became one of us. Of all the places in his universe, that's the last place you would have expected the great creator to have visited. No wonder the wise men mistakenly thought it was the palace in Jerusalem. It wasn't. It was the feeding trough of the cattle. I don't know what uh, the hygiene would have been like there. (laughs) 
and he was a real baby, he would have been crying. The first sign of life is the cry of a baby. It's a wonderful sound, isn't it? I can say that because I'm not a parent, but... <laughs> But it's good to have crying babies in a church. It's a sign of a live church. And the baby would have needed to have been changed. The baby would have needed carrying. This was God. Mary had been created by him. And you know the little games you play with babies. Do, do you like to uh, put your finger uh, in the hand of a little child and their hands are so small, their fingers are so small and they can wrap their little hands around your finger and this is mind-boggling when you think of the one whose hands created the universe. They're around Mary's finger and those hands that created the universe in 30 or so years' time, are going to be nailed to a cross, dying for our sins. So it was a real baby. And then when they moved from Nazareth, uh, from Jerusalem to their hometown of Nazareth, what kind of place was Nazareth? As I've kept on reminding you, it was not a nice place. It was a dump of a place. And he would have been brought up in a poor family, probably living in a poor neighborhood. His human father was a carpenter. He would have been, if I can communicate this without being misunderstood, he would have been one of the common people. Now, when I was growing up, we weren't supposed to be common. Did, did you have your parents say that to you? Don't do that. You look common. You look common. But the Lord Jesus, because of the place that was his hometown. He was one of the common people. The king of kings. Living on a sink estate. Very different to the palace. And then he would have become a teenager. Have we got teenagers here this morning? I'm sure there are teenagers here. You know what teenagers are like. Now, Jesus Christ went through the whole range of human experience. Again, the emphasis is on flesh. Apart from sin, never did he commit sin. He was tempted in all points, as we are. So I'm not going beyond in saying that as a teenager, he would have had hormones. He would have known what it was like to be battling with the fire of temptation, but he never yielded. Never once. If you're a teen and if you're disconnected from society, you can connect with the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows exactly what it's like. He would have had feelings. B.B. Uh, Warfield's got a very famous chapter in one of his works on the emotional life of our Lord. He showed his emotions, didn't he? He was way ahead of his time. When he became a young man, for most of his adult life, he wasn't a minister, you know. He was a carpenter. He would have helped in his father's shop. Think of that if you're a working person. Uh, don't be ashamed of the fact that you're a laborer. That is what Jesus Christ was. He was only three years a preacher. For longer than that, he was a working man, working class. 
He would have felt what it was like to be hungry. We know that from uh, the accounts in the gospel when he became a minister because he wasn't a health and wealth preacher. He didn't even have a place to lay down his head, did he? (laughs) You hear of some of these uh, prosperity preachers wanting to stay in a five-star hotel. Chris Reese had somebody from America preach for him once in Naboth and they couldn't understand why they had to stay with Chris and his family. Where's the nearest five-star hotel? Well, Chris had to say, there's no five-star hotel in West Wales. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't even have a home to lay down his head. He felt uh, hunger. He felt thirst. He felt tired. He knew what it was like. He felt bereavement. I know there are some of you grieving this morning. Jesus Christ knows exactly what it feels like. He felt betrayal when his closest friends uh, withdrew from him at his most critical hour. What I'm trying to say is Jesus Christ wasn't a freak. He's a real human being. And especially he felt suffering. Uh, Peter, who was an eyewitness to his majesty, what did Peter say in his letter? 1 Peter 4, 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. Not just the birth, but the full earthly life of our Savior. And it came to a climax when he suffered on the cross in the flesh. Peter uh, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. God didn't die on the cross, right? But the God-man did. And it was a real cross that he was nailed to. It was a real crown of thorns. It was real nails. It was a real spear. And it was a real human body that was wounded. When it was whipped, it... uh, was uh, something that he felt. When they put the crown of thorns upon his head, it was real blood. When they nailed his pure hands to that wooden cross, it was real pain, it was real blood, it was real blood, real water that came out of his wounded side. But it wasn't just any blood, was it? It wasn't just any body. It was the perfect sacrifice, and it was divine blood. Spurgeon says, the lily of the valleys, the only perfect human being to have walked this earth, reddened into the rose of Sharon. Aren't you glad of that? That by his death on the cross, he didn't die for his own sake. He didn't need to die. He died for you, for me. And it was a real body, a real corpse that they buried. It was a real tomb. I was there when they crucified my Lord. Not physically, but it was my sins. It was my sins that drove the nails into his hands. It was my sins uh, that was the spear that pierced his side. If it wasn't my sins, then there's no hope. Were you there? In the words of the children's story, do you believe? 
God manifest in the flesh. And then look at the next line. I'm sorry we're going to have to rush through these. Vindicated by the Spirit. What vindicates? It validates, validates. Uh, even though the Messiah concert wasn't in St. David's Hall last night because of the rack. It was in a church in Penarth. But we couldn't just walk in. We had to be validated. And these days, you don't have physical tickets, do you? You have tickets on your phone. So they would check our phones to validate us. And then we were allowed in. And as we sang in Anne Griffiths' carol, nobody can go into heaven. Not even Jesus Christ, the God-man, can enter heaven without validation, without being vindicated. And you know what, my friends? God vindicated him. Didn't he? The Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus Christ as the Son of God even before he ascended back into heaven. In his earthly ministry, do you remember when he was baptized? He didn't need to be baptized. What sins did he have to be washed of? But he was representing you and me. And so the Spirit vindicated that. The Spirit came down upon him as a dove, and there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We are not well pleasing to God in and of ourselves. That is why we're lost without Christ. That is why there is no hope for us of heaven. That is why when we die, and if we die without Christ, we die without hope. That makes it more poignant, doesn't it? Because that will be coming for us one day. But Christ is accepted. And we are accepted in him. Remember the miracles that he performed? They were not just signs. They were vindication of who he was. If I, said Jesus, by the finger of God drive out demons. God was vindicating his son again and again. He was telling people, here are his credentials. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I don't think if we would have lived 2,000 years ago, there wouldn't have been anything physical in Jesus Christ to make us think that this is the Son of God. Like all the others who heard him, we would have just either followed him for the miracles or just turned our backs on him. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes, as he did with those in Jesus' day. But what I want to mention, especially here, it was after his death that Jesus was vindicated as the sole, sufficient Savior of the world by God the Spirit raising him from the dead. Now, Jesus had power to raise himself from the dead. When he cried, it is finished, he had paid the debts for all of our sins, and he could have raised himself. But he didn't. We're told that God the Father raised him by the Holy Spirit. Because what God the Father was doing, what the Holy Spirit was doing, was saying, Amen, to the work of his Son. 
How can I know if putting my trust in Jesus Christ is going to make me accepted by God? How can I know that all my sins are going to be forgiven? How can I know that I can have a sure and certain hope of heaven for all eternity? This is what you need to know. God the Father says, I'm satisfied. And that's enough. Do you know what amen means? Amen isn't full stop. Some people think I say amen at the end of the prayer to means I've finished. No. If you would have been in Handel's Messiah last night, you would have lost count of the amens that were sung after worthy is the lamb. There's amen after amen. I think in heaven, when we sing worthy is the lamb, won't that be amazing? There were some Pentecostals in the concert last night and they couldn't help but sing out with the choir but imagine what it'll be like in the heavenly choir and they'll be amening they'll be amen after amen because amen is the hebrew word for so be it so be it god the father is saying to you and to me this morning so be it i'm satisfied with the perfect life of my son and with his atoning death in your place if you put your trust in him so be it I'll be satisfied in you. Not because you're good enough, but because he is. Peter again, for Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Holy Spirit. You may have wondered, why did I choose great as the gospel this morning? Well, it's obvious. The Spirit vindicated Christ our Lord when Jesus rose in glory and in might a penalty was paid and paid to the full and pardon bought and how did Mr. Hyam start that great is the mystery of godliness Jesus didn't come as some lifestyle coach. They're, you know, they're popular today, and there's a place for them, right? But that's not what Jesus Christ is. He did not come as a moral policeman. Some people like to have moral policemen tell them what they're supposed to do. That's not what Jesus Christ came to do. When we're saved, we do obey him, but not because he's a moral policeman. Jesus Christ came to save Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sins condemned sin in the flesh, that the law might be fulfilled in us. Hallelujah. I'm accepted in the beloved. Nowhere else. Man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Oh, my Lord, you sent your Son to die for us, that sin may not enslave us. That's uh, the adult choir song. Wonderful words. And then the last line of the first stanza, and then I'll be done. 
Seen by angels, seen by angels. All of this was witnessed by angels. You can't get away from angels, can you? These heavenly messengers, these ministers of salvation. It was the angel Gabriel that announced uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. It was a choir of angels that sang glory to God in the highest uh, outside uh, the fields of Jerusalem. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he was ministered to by angels. When Jesus was reaching the crux of his ministry on earth in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying, if it be possible, Father, let this cup, this bitter cup that I've got to drink on the cross, let it pass from me, he was strengthened by an angel. And when he was buried, and when by the Spirit the Father vindicated him by rising him from the grave, who were the first? there not the disciples not even the women there were angels there before and when Jesus ascended into heaven who were there angels there are angels hovering over the church the living church of Jesus Christ they're ministering spirits I believe in angels do you not to save but they are involved in the work of our salvation. I believe that angels hover over the gatherings of God's people. Athaniel believed, he shared this with me, that this pulpit is protected by angels. I believe that. What a wonderful thing the church is. I don't think there were angels hovering over COP26. I don't think they were interested. I don't think there'll be angels in Davos when all the great and the good meet, thinking that they rule the world. I don't think there'll be angels gathering in the Millennium Stadium when there's another match there. But there are angels interested in what we're doing and you know what they envy us now we envy angels don't we but angels envy us do you think i'm going too far no peter said even angels desire to look into these things that we're considering to whom it was revealed not to themselves but to you that they ministered these things to so angels are ministering to you and to me the things of salvation they are not participants of this great salvation. It's like uh, us in the concert last night. We were just the audience. The angels are just the audience of God's work of redemption. And even the archangel does not know what it's like to praise God for sending his son to die for him because he doesn't need a saviour. I think the angels are jealous of us because we can sing this morning songs of thanksgiving to God forever loving us. An angel can sing that. And I don't think angels, with all of their perfections, with all the time, and they've spent more time than us around the throne, 
I still don't think they can plumb the depths of love divine. Wesley understood that. Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore? We can't. We're just considering this hymn, and we're just scratching the surface. And our little minds are too small to be able to fully grasp what God has done. But listen, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. So stop trying to understand it. What do you have to do? What do I have to do as I come to a conclusion? The only thing you have to say is, it's mercy all. Immense and free. And, oh my God, it found out me. And let angel minds inquire no more. <laughs> May God make this the very heart and soul of our Christianity. What is the mystery of godliness? Not some new thing that the church has to discover. How tired we are. Aren't, aren't you weary of one fad after another in evangelicalism? No, no. It's he. We need to go back. Go back 2,000 years ago. And go back especially to that cross. And may we say, he, that's all I want. And may you believe first. As I ask the children, I'm asking you, do you believe? Do you believe? And if you do, do you worship? Do you worship? We're not very good at worshipping. May we be worshippers. And may we do that now by singing together uh, this hymn of Wesley's. Is it familiar? Yes, it is. And can it be? Wesley didn't lose that wonder that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me? Who caused his pain? I think someone's agreeing with him. <laughs> for me, to him, to death pursued. Amazing love. Yes, it, it is. My God has died for me. Let's sing 524.
Father, we praise Thee. We can sing our little hearts out. Our voices may not be like that of the uh, choir uh, in a concert, but Lord, we have a new song and we have new hearts and we just want to worship Thee for Jesus Christ. And Lord, the audacity to say that we can claim the crown through Christ, our own. And Lord, we thank Thee for the audacity of grace that we're not boasting in ourselves, but we're boasting in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. And may every one of us here be able to say that because of thy grace. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen. <laughs>